Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. What we're allowing these software companies to do is cut out the middleman and actually turn that historical cost center of payments into a profit center. I think what you start to see over the last few years is companies like Shopify, companies like MindBody, Toast, Uber, and Lyft, and even Airbnb. They may not look like payment companies, but when you look under the hood, they really are payment companies. They're making somewhere north of 50% of their entire revenue from their financial services. That was Richie Cerna, the CEO and co-founder of Phoenix. This is episode 34 of the Leaders in Payments podcast, and Richie is our special guest this week. I'm your host, Greg Myers, and I'm honored to have Richie on the show. Richie was born and raised in California and was the first in his family to go to college. He received his bachelor's degree in political science at Harvard and started his career in management consulting. Phoenix is a payments infrastructure provider that allows software companies to embed or integrate payments into their software, which provides a better user experience and adds a new revenue stream, basically allowing them to transform their business models. Richie has several interesting stories during this episode, including a story about the Hacker House and one about the naming of the company. Richie has a great passion for people, from his customers to his employees. This is an episode you don't want to miss, so let's get started. Hi, Richie. Thank you for being here, and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Thanks for having me, Greg. Always exciting to talk to another fellow payments geek. Absolutely. So let's dive right in. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, a few things like that. Yeah, so I'm originally from Southern California, born and raised out in Santa Ana, which is a town out in Orange County. My parents both immigrated there from Mexico when they came back in the 70s and 80s, and that's actually where they ended up meeting. My dad is a bus driver down there, still drives around for the Orange County Transportation Association, and my mom is a translator. I was actually one of the first in my family to go to college, but that doesn't mean I didn't pick up some startup hustle from my family. As I mentioned, my dad, he's a complete workhorse, loves to hustle and, and you know works day and night to support for us and our family, but also just a tinkerer. He you know loved picking up different types of hobbies, loved to compete, loved to play sports. And I think that's kind of where I got some of that edge from as well. And my mom is just an incredibly selfless person. She is also a hustler. And, and I always like to share the story about how she got me into one of the better schools in our local neighborhood because she camped outside of that school to make sure that we could get in. And I think that's just sort of a testament to that sort of immigrant hustle that, you know, we developed, my brother and I, at a very young age. Ended up being, as I mentioned, the first one to go to college, went out to the East Coast and studied political science over at Harvard. Had no idea anything about payments, no idea anything about tech, and started my career off in management consulting. So sort of a a roundabout way to get into tech and payments, but I think it really gave us a sort of unique lens to kind of bring to the startup ecosystem. Absolutely. Fascinating story and family there. Let's talk about Phoenix a little bit. So tell the audience what Phoenix does. Yeah, so Phoenix is basically a payments infrastructure provider. What we do is we allow software companies to bring their payments in-house to basically embed payments into their overall software offering, providing a better user experience for their customers and adding an entirely new revenue stream to their business. Basically, what we're allowing them to do is fundamentally transform their business model. A lot of these software companies are now being the sort of central point for SMBs and other sort of B2B offerings. And so payments inevitably is a part of that. And so what we're allowing these software companies to do is cut out the middleman and actually turn that historical cost center of payments into a profit center. 
And I think what you start to see over the last few years is companies like Shopify, companies like MindBody, Toast, Uber, and Lyft, and even Airbnb. They may not look like payment companies, but when you look under the hood, they really are payment companies. They're making somewhere north of 50% of their entire revenue from their financial services. And so the reality is, if you want to do something like that, you likely, if you try to do this on your own, are going to hire anywhere between two to 300 engineers just to provide that payments infrastructure. What we're saying now is that there's a better way to do that, and that's by licensing out the technology from Phoenix and allowing our customers to really just start building on that front-end UI to the core competency of their specific business. Okay, and beyond software companies, are there other markets or verticals that you serve? Yeah, so the reason why we call ourselves a a payments infrastructure company is because we can really sell to anybody in the payment stack. If you look at the payments ecosystem, there are a tremendous amount of providers that are out there. There has been a pretty massive shift towards software providers, like I mentioned before, but there's also still traditional providers who are servicing merchants today. And a lot of those types of businesses will actually license out various modules and components of our platform. We also work with, you know, Marketplace lenders like Cabbage, uh, they're a unicorn based out of Atlanta. They basically issue out loans to the SMB market. They wanted to get into the payment space as well to be able to provide their SMBs a full suite of financial services and products. And they can do that by partnering up with someone like Phoenix. We work with banks and financial institutions, and we even work with some of the credit card networks today. One of our earliest investors was Visa, and we work with them not just in an investor sort of relationship, but also as a vendor. So I think that's one of the things that makes our product particularly special. Okay, and how big is the company? So we were 15 people last year. We're now about 85. So we've been growing pretty aggressively over the last year with plans to get to 150 to 160 over the next year. We have three offices headquartered out here in San Francisco, have another office in Santa Clara, but our other office is in Cincinnati. Um, So we have a a pretty strong set of payment experts who came out of Vantive, which is now WorldPay. And so we always like to think of ourselves as sort of having that unique competitive advantage of bringing together that best-in-class Silicon Valley technology with the domain experts who've been in the payments business for years and years. Gotcha. So what would you say differentiates you guys from your competitors? Yeah, I think, you know, one, aside from that sort of team that we put together, I think a really big part of it is that we don't necessarily service one part of the market. Historically, if you were a payment service provider, you would either be selling to tiny little startups or you would be, you know, sort of a a legacy provider who some of the more large enterprise customers were built on. Because we were sort of built our platform in the new age of of APIs and developer-friendly experiences, we can actually service that entire market. We've got started off first selling into the payment facilitator world. So just helping Payfax stand up their business in a matter of months as opposed to years. But we also have been able to use that same suite of APIs to sell to financial institutions to enable them to offer real-time disbursements directly to debit cards. So if you guys are familiar with Visa Direct, MasterCard Send, these sort of push to debit uh, offerings where you can actually disperse funds to a debit card in 30 minutes or less, we're enabling banks to do that as well. So there's tons of different use cases that we can support. And I think that's a big part of the sort of flexibility and extensibility of the platform that we built. One of the things we always like to share is that if you look at some of the other sort of developer payment providers who are out there, you know, the sort of the stripes, the brain trees of the world, they have a sort of different approach than we do. They're more like iOS, right? More like an Apple-like product where you have to use their ecosystem. For Phoenix, we've always envisioned ourselves being more like Google Android, where we can provide more configuration more control, and fundamentally, more optionality. And I think that's a big, big differentiator for us and what our vision is of the world. Okay, and you guys recently launched something, a product or service, I believe you call Flex. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, we first got started off selling into the payment facilitator world. So basically enabling these software companies to start monetizing their payments, starting to 
onboard and underwrite their own merchants, allowing them to fully control end-to-end that merchant experience. What we started to see is that you know typically companies, ISVs, platforms, B2B providers make that sort of transition once they hit $50 million in volume or more. The reality is that there's a lot of high growth startups and high growth companies who want to start planning for that future growth period and want to start planning to become a payment facilitator, but just aren't quite ready. They haven't hit that $50 million threshold, but they really want to start future proofing their payments. So Flex is basically an offering that allows those customers to start using the Phoenix APIs without taking on that risk and without becoming a payment facilitator or managing any of that sort of compliance requirements. So it's a great way for them to sort of get the training wheels, start monetizing their payments. And more importantly, it provides them that sort of frictionless experience to transition over into becoming a payment facilitator. So typically, when you make that shift from your prior payment provider into becoming a payment facilitator, there might be some migration friction that is involved with that. Migrating over some of your data with Flex, there is no migration pain. It's basically just a flip of the switch. And so that's a very, very powerful thing to allow these customers to really start thinking about their payment strategy at their inception. Okay, great. So let's talk a little bit now about the payment industry as a whole. Where do you see it heading, say, in the next two to three years? Oh, I mean, it's such an exciting time to be in payments. I remember when I first joined the industry, this would be something like seven years ago. I remember actually having some hesitations to enter the payment industry because I didn't think that there was that much innovation going on. And, and boy, were we wrong. I think what you're seeing right now, especially, is an increase in innovation just as a result of COVID. I mean, you're seeing these massive shifts in terms of digitization, and that was already occurring, but that has been even more so catalyzed over the last few months. Another part that we're seeing is a lot of excitement around contactless payments. I personally have been in payments for a number of years and really honestly didn't care for contactless payments until the pandemic hit. And now I've become a germaphobe and, you know, will actually seek out places that do have that contactless Apple Pay offering. But I think the other part that's really exciting is that this sort of combination of software and payments is just happening at a faster and faster rate. You see Shopify and their recent earnings announcement, they had the best quarter in their company history. And I think that is just sort of indicative of the way that the world is going. We think that in the not too distant future that you know the bulk of software companies are going to be making 40 to 50% of their total revenue from payments. And that's a huge, huge shift. Sure. And when you think about that, how important is it that the software companies are vertically focused? Is that sort of, you know, something that that is the future? Or do you think those sort of horizontal focused companies can still survive? Yeah, I think the horizontal payment providers, I think they're they're somewhat of a, they're at a disadvantage, right? And I think that there's been a lot of innovation in that space, but that's sort of the 1.0 of the payments innovation. 2.0 is basically coupling together software and payments. And so that's because as a submerchant, you pick the software first, and the payments that come along with it are sort of tacked on. This true value that you're getting is out of the software that is helping you run the day-to-day operations of your business. And I'll give you an example. So one of our customers goes by the name of Club Essential. They're a software provider for wealth, fitness studios, and country clubs around the nation. If you were managing a club, typically you would have three different providers. You would have one provider for online membership fees. You'd have another set of payment providers for the in-store, the restaurant, and the bar payments. And then you actually have to pay for a software provider to help you manage the day-to-day operations of that business, the memberships and all those things like that. By partnering with someone like a Club Essential, that can actually help them bring all three of those under one complete software offering. So it minimizes the sort of friction of having disparate data systems. It simplifies the back office operations and just provides a tremendous more value. In those types of instances, the submerchants are willing to pay a premium because they're getting a lot more for the software that they're paying. 
Sure. So you mentioned, you know, obviously software and payments being together. You mentioned contactless e-commerce. You know, that's all things, obviously, that we think the next couple of years are going to continue and that trend is speeding up. Care to think about maybe five or 10 years out where you think payments will be? Ooh, that's exciting. I mean, you know, I think first off, payments are all about ubiquity in terms of different types of payment methods, about uh, different types of compliance offerings, about different types of currencies that you can accept. I mean, one of the things that we view ourselves as more than just a payment company, we view ourselves as building and rebuilding the financial infrastructure for sort of the global scale. And so I think that once we really achieve that vision, that, that bigger picture that we're trying to accomplish, that'll really enable payments to become sort of, as we describe it, the sort of fourth platform. And so you've seen a lot of things that have happened over the last few decades in technology that have really had transformative impacts. First, it was the introduction of the internet. From there, it was the cloud and then mobile services. You don't really talk about how a company is an internet-based company. You don't talk about a company being a cloud-based company or a mobile-based company. They're just sort of ubiquitous. I think that same trend is going to happen with financial services and payments. And that's why we say that our big vision is to enable every software company to become a payment company. It's just going to be a part of sort of the expectation of the product offering for these software providers. Absolutely makes sense. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little more about you. Tell us about your journey to your role there as the CEO. Obviously, you told us a little bit you went to the East Coast and went to Harvard, but between Harvard and Phoenix, what was your journey like and how did the whole Phoenix company come about? Yeah, it was, it was a pretty roundabout way, to be honest. So I had done two years of management consulting, was focusing in financial services and tech and telecom. I got really good at creating PowerPoints, got really good at Excel models, but really wasn't all that fulfilled. And so I made the decision that I was going to go into investing. So I interviewed at a bunch of private equity firms, interviewed at a bunch of venture capital firms, started reading TechCrunch, really trying to you know get smart on the industry and just couldn't get a job, to be honest. I kept making it to the final rounds and just couldn't get that across the line. And so sort of in a moment, I was like, well, why don't I just go out and try my hand at starting my own company? So I talked to a few of my friends who were in the startup ecosystem, some investors, and one friend basically told me in a pretty blunt way, well, you shouldn't do this because you've never worked at a rocket ship startup. You don't know how to code and your parents aren't rich. So who's going to fund you? And so those, it was a pretty, you know, a cold <laughs> call, but it was the cold dish of reality that I really needed to hear. And so with that, I realized that, yeah, I couldn't control not having a big friends and family round to go out and start the company, but I could control my ability to go learn software engineering. So I ended up quitting my job, moved to San Francisco. This is back in 2013, moved into a hacker house, which I'm not sure if you know what those are, but it's basically like a hostel for tech nerds and other people who are you know, trying to start companies and, and trying to learn software engineering and um, was lucky enough to get my start as an engineer at a previous payment company by the name of Balanced. And so Balance was basically the first payments API for marketplaces. It was the only place that I ever interviewed at. And it was, you know, really lucky. It was actually where I met our new VP of marketing. He was actually my boss and he became one of my close friends. But when I came in and he said, you know, we're doing this marketplace payments play, I was like, what is, what are marketplace payments? What does that even mean? <laughs> and so really <laughs> for me, it was, oh, well, this is a, a way that I can really cut my teeth in the engineering world. So I'll, I'll take this job and just absolutely fell in love with the world of payments just because of how complex it was. The nuance of it, how esoteric it is, it was just sort of this rabbit hole <laughs> that you just kind of go down and just really, really enjoyed every piece of it. And so it was probably the most complex thing that I ever done. I uh, was working for a 
20-year-old sort of rock star engineer from Berkeley and every day would just go in there and just super hungry to learn. So it was the first one in, last one out. And we ended up selling that business to Stripe back in 2015. And so after Stripe bought us uh, and we exited to them, I was out of the job. And so had a bunch of people start reaching out to us saying, hey, we really love the technology that you built back at Balance. What if you came in-house and did that for us? And that was sort of the light bulb moment of, oh, there's a massive market here. And there's this unique domain expertise that we've developed over the last few years um, that we can really start to sort of transform the market. And so that was sort of the light bulb moment. I got together with my co-founder, Sean. He actually started the payment facilitator group over at Vantiv and started chatting with him about, you know, hey, how difficult is it really to start up a payfac? We had been doing it at Balance. We were a payfac ourselves. And he said, you know, on average, it would take a software company two, three years before they ran their first transaction. So we got together and, and that was really what we, how we started Phoenix. Okay. And the name Phoenix, where did it come from? So when we signed our first contract, we had two or three days to incorporate the business. <laughs> and so <laughs> we really didn't want to have pay anywhere in the name because we just thought, you know, you just have so many companies with the name pay and it's really hard to sort of disambiguate who they all are. And so I started asking actually my mom for names of money or payments in Spanish and she suggested a bunch and none that really stuck out for me. And then a friend basically said, hey, this is kind of the rebirth of balance, right? This is us coming together and building another payment company. It's kind of like the rebirth of a phoenix. And so we looked it up in Spanish and phoenix in Spanish is spelled F-E-N-I-X. And so then we're like, oh, what if we change the E to an I because it's like fintech and we call it phoenix payments. And so that was uh, how we came up with the name. That's great. That's great. I hadn't (laughs) heard that story before. So that's great. (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk about some things you're passionate about. So maybe give me one work-related thing and one personal thing that you have a strong passion for. I think in both instances, it's people. I think it reflects its ways in certain activities that, that I'm a part of. But that's really what really gets me up in the morning. It's funny, we, in the world of startups, VCs will always ask you, you know, what keeps you up at night? And it's basically a question to assess what are the biggest fears? What are the risk factors for your business? But I started asking now employees and in interviews, I'll ask them sort of the opposite of that question. What gets you up in the morning? And when I think about that for myself, It's the people at Phoenix, it's our customers, it's our investors, it's seeing people grow. And I think that's one of the most fun and most fulfilling parts of a startup. It's not, you know, raising tens of millions of dollars. It's being able to see people who we brought in really early, who we took risks on and seeing them grow as leaders and people, both personally and professionally. It's hard not to think about, you know, for example, one of our colleagues, his name's Oscar, he heads up our support team. He joined us when we were maybe 12, 13 people. I met him at a conference, came in, you know, young guy at the age of 25, and just has become, you know, basically a, a member of the executive team here. Grew up the support engineering team. And he just has a tremendous amount of hustle and just a lot of heart and dedication and grit. And I think that's one of the things that really is sort of a shared thread or characteristic of the Phoenix team. They all have really inspiring stories. They were all sort of underdogs who looked at the odds and still pushed through. So for someone like Oscar, we actually just started doing this thing at Phoenix at the start of COVID that we call Phoenix Matters. And so basically it's an hour-long bi-weekly series where a colleague will tell their life story and how they got to Phoenix, what the sort of trials and tribulations were of their lives. And so Oscar was in Guatemala and he would ride a motorcycle to the internet cafe every single day to finish his college applications. And he actually ended up getting into Stanford. Just an incredible, incredible story. And I think things like that are really the parts that make the job so amazing. Yeah. So you mentioned VCs. You guys have raised some money. Maybe talk about that a little bit, how that journey happened. And I think people would be interested to hear sort of how that all came about and, you know, who your investors are and why they invested in you and maybe a few things like that. 
Yeah. So when we first started the company, the plan was actually to bootstrap the business and, and try to do it all on our own. So we'd saved a bunch, bunch of money, didn't pay ourselves for the first year and a half. And it was a complete grind. <laughs> and about, I'd say a year and a half in, we decided to go out and, and actually fundraise. We you know, gotten an, a good amount of progress at the time. And it was really difficult. This is actually back in 2017. And I'm not sure if you remember, but that was the time when Bitcoin was at like $20,000. Mm-hmm. So every single VC thought that Bitcoin was going to wipe away the world of payments. And that was literally the way that every conversation would go. It'd be like, this is kind of cool, but isn't Bitcoin going to erase like the payments world? And so I think that really just showed it. And you laugh because you know how hard it is to build a global payments ecosystem or build a global payment network in the same way that Visa, MasterCard, Amex, and Discover all have. It takes decades. It wasn't by accident. And there's a ton of compliance for a lot of good reasons. And so we slogged it out. I probably pitched 70 to 80 people at that time and and was lucky enough to find an incredible investor in Homebrew. Our lead investor was Sacha Patel. He's on our board. And he invested in a number of great fintech companies from Plaid to Chime. And he's really, as an early stage investor, really proven himself out in that market and just a good person. And I think that's one of the things that for us has always really been important. Again, going back to that people theme, it's not just the employees or the partners that we do business with. It's also our investors, right? These are long-term relationships. These are long-term partnerships. And so, you know, we spoke to a number of VCs and, you know, shared a common sort of view of the world and alignment of our values and have been lucky enough to work with them for the last few years. The Series A, we ended up raising back in last July. And so it's been a little bit over a year. We ended up bringing on Matt Harris and Jameson Hill from Baincat Ventures. Matt Harris has been in the payments and in fintech space for you know, 15, 20 years before there really was a fintech space and before it was really cool and hot. And so I'd been following his blogs and his writings for years. So it was incredibly exciting to have someone who kind of had been a trailblazer in that space for a while and ended up raising our Series B last December, so shortly after that. And I think, you know, a lot of it was just sort of this convergence of every software company becoming a payment company, every software company becoming a fintech company. And, you know, I would say when I first got in the payments world, this was seven years ago, there wasn't a lot of fundraising going into fintech. This was 2013 and really before Stripe had come along and Square, the last big fintech exit was probably PayPal which was a long, long time ago. So a lot of VCs actually had sort of a mandate that they weren't going to invest in fintech because there hadn't been any proof points. And now you just see that whole world is turned upside down where a massive chunk of venture capital is going into fintech for good reason. There's a lot of innovation that's going on here at this given moment. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. You mentioned people and, you know, that's always been part of the reason I put this whole podcast together was to talk about leaders in the industry and bring their story to life and also give them a platform to talk about their companies. But this is a question I always ask because I think it's important for the leaders to share some advice that they have. You know, kids in college today or very early in their career may look at fintech or payments as a career choice. 15 years ago, when I got in payments. I mean, I went to work for J.P. Morgan Chase because it was a name, a big company, security, mm-hmm. all those things. I just fell into payments. I mean, I had no idea what payments was. Now, you know, college kids are taking courses around it. You know, I think there's so much, like you said, investment in it that it's become a hot, you know, sexy industry to be in. <laughs> right? How wild is that? How crazy yeah, is that? <laughs> it is crazy. I mean, you, you're talking about innovation. And I'm thinking back, okay, we used to send faxes out as a marketing tactic. And mm-hmm. I, I remember that. And it's like, we've come a long way from sending faxes <laughs> out till today. I was involved in taking the, the Chase terminals and making them blue. 
you know, every chase, oh, really? every, right. Every terminal, no matter what manufacturer, you know, they all look the same. They look like, you know, we called them a brick or whatever. And one day I just said, well, why aren't they chase blue? So we went through that process. That seemed like a huge, big innovation to make <laughs> terminal a color. So anyway, yeah. just funny stories. But anyway, so what advice would you give someone coming right out of school that wants to get in this industry? What would you tell them to do to be successful? So it's funny, this actually reminds me of a podcast I listened to like three or four years ago, and it was a fintech investor, and they asked him a similar question, and he said, don't do it. Don't go into fintech. It's super hard. <laughs> and he's like, when you go into it, it's going to take you two or three years of working at a previous payment startup or fintech startup, really start to understand the guts of it, the compliance aspects. And then after that, you can start your own company, and that's going to take you another two, three years of investing in the technology. Was he right? Yeah, probably pretty spot on uh, in terms of that assessment. But I think, you know, for anybody who's interested in it, the point really rings true. And and I wouldn't discourage anybody from it. I I love what I get to do every single day. I think it's super fascinating and exciting. And it's one of the products that everybody touches, you know, two or three times a day. We just don't even think about it. But I think the biggest part of advice is try to go early on to a fintech startup where you can really get a lot of cross-functional exposure. That's really where you start to understand not just one little silo, but you see how the whole picture comes together. You get to see the sort of nuance of security, of engineering, of product, support, documentation, developer documentation, marketing. And that is a really, really unique place to kind of be deep in those trenches. That was my favorite part of being at Balance and was kind of just getting thrown in there. Started off in developer support, moved into engineering support, then started building out front end, back end, just working on the full stack. And it was just so insightful to see how people were using our products to understand the compliance burdens, the challenges, the legal aspects of it. I always like to say, you know, one of the best skill sets that I have has been being really deep in that nitty gritty. And so, you know, the phrase, you don't want to see how the sausage is made. Well, mm-hmm. I was a factory worker. <laughs> I was deep in there working on the guts of this stuff for years and years. And it's been so insightful. And I think if you come from a non-traditional finance or fintech or, or financial services background, you can really bring a lot of unique perspectives and ways to kind of rethink the industry, rethink how things were done. And that's really where innovation comes in. Great. And, you know, we've covered a lot about Phoenix, a lot about the industry, a lot about you and your journey. Is there anything else that you want to mention before we wrap up? I think, you know, the thing that I've been thinking about a lot, and it's sort of a common thread along a lot of the sort of fintech companies that have had recent success and having a lot of you know friends who've now gone on to become CEOs of unicorn founded startups, is that it was never a straight line. It was never a clear picture. It was never an complete up and to the right sort of story, right? There's a lot of dips in every business, but particularly in the fintech business, because what we do is incredibly hard. And so, you know, having that resiliency, having that determination and knowing that there's light at the end of the tunnel, I think is really encouraging for people to to get in this space and bring some really unique perspective, as I mentioned before, but just sort of push innovation. Start a fintech, as I mentioned, a lot of barriers to entry uh, in terms of domain expertise and capital, but there's still so, so much opportunity there. We're just starting to scratch the surface. Absolutely. Well, Richie, thank you so much for your time today and being on the show. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. I really had fun. Yeah, I did too. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well.